This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. We heard today. Um, wanted to point this out because I thought this was uh, I thought this was worth a a nod to our Prime Minister and to the Queen because we heard today that uh, ex former astronaut Julie Payette was going to be Canada's new Governor General. We actually caught wind of this last night or the day yesterday during the day or the day before. I'm not sure, but it was made official today. And you know what? A pat on the back to the Prime Minister and to the Queen for okaying it, I guess, you know, is the Queen ever going to say no? Is the Queen ever going to send Justin Trudeau a little email back saying, ah, I'm sorry there, Justin, but we're not uh, we're not taking your your choice. Come up with another one. I, I cannot believe that would ever happen. I mean, unless Justin Trudeau chose O.J. Simpson or someone to be our Governor General, I just, I can't imagine that there would be an issue here. But anyway. We criticize when criticism is warranted. We praise when praise is warranted. And today, you know what? The Prime Minister deserves our praise because this was a good choice. And I'll tell you the biggest reason why this is a good choice. And some of you may disagree. Some of you will agree. I'd love to hear from you. But Julie Payette, um, in case you don't know, and by now I'm sure, even if you didn't know much about her, by this time through the news, wherever you found it, you've probably heard a little bit about her because this is a, this is a, a woman who is, um, a rather unique individual. I'm just trying to find the list here of the things she can do. She speaks six languages. Where did it go here? Um, she speaks six languages. She is, as I say, a former astronaut. She's an accomplished athlete. She's a pianist. She's a choral singer. She does an awful lot of things. And that's all great because all of the governors general have had their things they're good at. They've all had their their strengths that you would like to think they would anyway. I mean, if they're going to be representing the queen, and again, whether you're a monarchist or not, I mean, this, this may be a huge announcement to you today. This may be a completely non-issue to you. But fair enough. But the fact is, we are going to have a governor general. So we would like to think that we would have a good governor general and someone that can we Canadians can be proud of. And I think that it's hard to imagine that too many Canadians are going to say, you know what, someone who has spent time on the International Space Station and became an astronaut out of Canada and does all these things, and best I can tell from everything I've been able to read today, has never done anything to embarrass the country, has only been a good citizen and, and, a, and a credit to this country. So... Sounds like a perfect choice. But here's why, beyond that, here is why I think this announcement gets extra plaudits. Tell you why. And let me finish my thought before you go, whoa, what are you saying here? Many people, if you read a number of the stories today, you even heard it on the news right before we came on here. Many people were saying, yes, this was a this was a good choice. In spite of the fact that many people said, yes, but the governor general should have been an indigenous person. Now, there's no problem with, there would be no problem with having an indigenous person. None at all. And I'm sure that out there, I'm sure that many indigenous people in this country would be worthy candidates, worthy governors general. This is not about whether or not you can find an indigenous person who could do this. That's not the point. I'm sure we could. But I'm looking at 
Julie Payette's resume, and this seems to me someone who is eminently, thoroughly, fully, absolutely qualified for this job. And in our country, I hate to say this, but we are guilty sometimes of thinking quota before thinking ability. We are guilty sometimes of thinking of appearance and perception before resume, before accomplishment. Not always, but sometimes. And if... Justin Trudeau had come forward and presented an uh, indigenous person who had a tremendous resume, who he wanted to have as the person. That's great. I don't know what kind of dealing or what kind of deal, what kind of digging, pardon me. I don't know what kind of looking was done to find somebody, but the reality is we have someone who has been chosen. who doesn't matter what their background is. Doesn't matter. I mean, again, I don't know how much of it was political that it had to be a woman because remember, We had a male governor general the last time, and they've generally, I think, they've generally gone back and forth, male, female, male, female. Okay, so there's probably some politics involved in that. We don't want to get ourselves in trouble. But we have chosen somebody here with impeccable credentials. We have chosen somebody here who is fully worthy based on what she has done with her life and what she's achieved in her life. And It doesn't appear on its face anyway that this was simply some kind of thing to appease some group. Maybe it was. And I would love to see an indigenous person at some point be the governor general. I hope that there are lots of people putting forward names for down the road for the next one, for the one after that. But considering the pressure that was being put on to have, and and believe me, it's not just indigenous you know that with any kind of announcement like this there's all kinds of pressure from all kinds of groups who all want the person that they believe should be in there because it's time we had this or it's time we had that you know those pressures are there so i applaud the fact that we simply chose however the process was done we simply chose a person who has impeccable qualifications Could there have been an indigenous person with equal qualification? Well, I don't know if it's equal because it would be, you could have similar level, but different things. I don't know that we have any indigenous astronauts. If you were looking for only an astronaut, if only astronauts could qualify, no, you're, you're not going to find one there. There, there are for sure indigenous people who have achieved wonderful things. Again, this is not about that. This is not about, there is not an indigenous person out there in Canada that could have fulfilled the role. I'm, I'm sure there is. But so often it seems we do the predictable thing and when pressure is on to put a particular group or a particular this or that or the other, we, we, we do that and, and I'm just looking at this saying, if it had been Indigenous, great, but we've picked someone who you can look at their resume and say, can't argue with that. I'm happy for that. I think that's the right thing to do. I, I, again, I applaud the Prime Minister. I do hope that we do have an Indigenous person soon in this role. And to be fair, many of the people who were pushing or suggesting or encouraging that there be an Indigenous Governor General came forward today and said, you know what, no, this was, a, this was an inspired choice. This was a great choice. Good job. When you have someone who has done this many things on the world stage and, and done this many things well, there's no problem with choosing them. Regardless, male, female, doesn't matter. This 
race, that race, this background, that background, this province, there's there's one, right? We get this happens, this comes up with so many issues in this country. What province are they from? Do we do we have to go back to someone from Quebec every second time or something? We don't it doesn't I, I was looking it up today because I heard someone mention that. The governors general are not regularly or alternately, some people wondered this, from Quebec. Many of them or a number of them have had French backgrounds, but they're not. It's It doesn't matter what province they're from. It shouldn't matter what province they're from. If you are a qualified candidate, and let's leave this for a second. I hope this is a great example for us. We don't, we spend a lot of time, a lot of people do, especially in certain government offices and universities and places like that, trying to find people that will fill quotas and positions and perceptions. It's If you can find someone who is eminently qualified, great. And this, look, this showed something else too. This is a woman who has better qualifications than just about any man that's out there. And you know what? She got the job and perfect. That is outstanding. That is what should be happening. We shouldn't be saying, well, you know, nobody, I can't believe it would still go on. I can't believe anyone would still say, well, that's a woman. We can't really, you know, I'm going to, she's got to do more. No, she, this is a person who was right for the role, who was got the background, who's got the, the, the stuff. I was going to say the right stuff, but that would have been an astronaut cliche and unintended, but you know. But I, again, I go back. I, I applaud the fact that we have a prime minister who made the right choice here. It appears he made the right choice, and it wasn't about perception. It wasn't about trying to uh, to make a, group, a particular group happy or fill some sort of quota of some kind or anything along that line. At least it doesn't appear. It was just the right person. Can't do better than that. This was, this was a good choice, and I am really glad that... He chose someone, again, whether you agree with the position, whether you think it's an important position, whether you don't, he chose someone that we can't argue about. How do you possibly argue that this person is not qualified or not worthy of this role? So even if you think it should have been someone else, you cannot look at this and go, ooh, that looks like a patronage appointment. That looks like a quota thing. I don't even know. Maybe we'll find out. I hope. I actually kind of hope not, but maybe we'll find out whether Julie Payette has any kind of political connections. I, I don't know that she's a liberal. I don't know if she's a conservative. I don't know if she's an NDP. I don't know what she is. That's the way it should be. This is a role that should not be political. This is a role that should simply be someone who fills the bill perfectly. If the next person, if we can find, and I'm sure they are out there, I have no doubt they're there. Maybe they just haven't been identified yet, but the next one, if it can be an indigenous person, perfect. But there was a lot of pressure for that today, for this time. And it would have been fine. It would have been great if they were. But it was also, by the same token, great that it doesn't appear. It it appeared we just took someone who was eminently, eminently qualified and made them the choice. That's the way things should be done. We're going to take a quick break. Back after this on The Scott Radley Show. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Today, notwithstanding, it's 30 degrees outside most most days and sunny. So what better to talk about than hockey? Of course, 
Because while you probably, when the NHL, when the Stanley Cup playoffs wrapped up, if you hadn't already bailed out before then when the Leafs were eliminated, but when the Penguins won the Stanley Cup, that was probably the moment you said, hockey season's done, time to go out in the pool. But that's not actually when hockey season officially wrapped up. Partially because hockey season never officially wraps up. There is always something going on. But because the guts, as I described it earlier, the the inner workings of the world of hockey continue 12 months a year. And the people who are in it, well, let me just bring in my guest. Because he has been able to experience the inner workings in a really exciting way. A couple weeks ago... Mackenzie Entwistle, who plays for the Hamilton Bulldogs, was sitting in the arena in Chicago waiting to find out if he was going to hear his name called at the NHL draft. Well, he knew his name was going to be called. Hearing to find out, waiting to find out when he was going to be called. Turned out, came in the third round to the Arizona Coyotes, meaning Mackenzie Entwistle is now an NHL draft pick. He joins me now. Mackenzie, congratulations. Yeah, thanks, Scott. This um, it, it was an honor to be drafted by such a great organization, and uh, thanks for having me today. You, um, when you were sitting there, you knew first of all. I mean, you knew you were going to be drafted somewhere, right? I mean, it would have been a complete shock if you weren't. Um, yeah. Well, I, I kind of had um, an idea, but uh, you know, sitting in that chair and, and wondering, and and you know, you, you obviously once the season was over, you, you kind of saw the projected lists and and uh i mean you, you listened to see what people were saying and where, where they thought you were going to go and and uh, you know it, it made it kind of interesting uh on draft day and and um uh, to see who who thought right and and who projected hmm. right so um i mean it, it was fun and and i had a great time but the fact that i mean you were down how many family members and friends were you with like two dozen yeah, there was, there was uh, I think there was around 20, 25 or 21 of us or something, or somewhere around there. Yeah, so you would not have taken all of them to Chicago if you did not really believe you were going to be called somewhere in the seven rounds. You know what? I had no part in that. Uh, <laughs> it was, it, if I could have, um, and, and uh, if I could, I, I was so happy in the end that, that all those people got to share that moment with me, but... Um, I mean, I was nervous, and, and that was the biggest thing was was I didn't want to make them uh, pay all that money and, and, <laughs> with, and come with me on draft day and not get drafted, you know. So uh, I was happy it all worked out. Well, and, and by the way, I want to say this. You were wearing a really sharp-looking brand-new suit, really like a what, – what color blue was that even called? I'm not even sure. Like it was, it was a good-looking suit that I understand your old teammate, Nikki Petty, got you set up in. Yeah, yeah, he did. How much? Uh, how much did he set you back for that one to look good when you went to the draft? Oh, he. Uh, <laughs> I told my parents. I said, uh, "Hey, mom, dad, you know, I need a, I need a suit coming up for for the draft." And you know, they knew. They knew. They said, "Yeah, no problem. Pick pick one out." Blah blah blah. And and uh, they said, "Just keep it reasonable." So I said, "Okay, yeah, no problem." And then uh, me and Patty went out shopping one day, and you know, he he. He's like, don't worry, I'll hook you up. I got a couple of guys that that um, that I get my suits from, and I went and yeah, you know, it wasn't it wasn't uh, the cheapest suit, but no, it all worked in the end. My parents got over it. Well, yeah, after you get if you hadn't been drafted, I, they may have been harder for them to get over it, but you knew that was going to happen. But okay, so you're sitting there. You got 21 or 25 family members that are sitting there with you. You're in the arena. You don't want, as you just said, you don't want to disappoint them. And so I'm, I'm guessing that they then are in the back of your mind somewhere. So 
honestly, how nerve wracking does it get when name after name after name is going? And you didn't have to wait that long. Again, it was early in the third round, but how difficult is it to sit there and hear this going on? You know what? Um, it, it was nerve wracking. And I think even if you ask uh, my parents, uh, I mean, they told me after the fact that I was sitting there and, and my legs are constantly jumping. And, and uh, I mean, Stromer was a couple rows ahead of me. Um, so, I mean, it, it was nerve wracking having all those uh, those people there um, as well. What was and they were right beside me as well. And, and you know, I, I'll never forget it. My billet brothers, they're they're uh, very very young, and uh, they were saying, "Mac, Mac, what, like, why aren't you getting drafted? Why isn't your name being called?" And I'm like, "Oh, like, you know, like that's the last thing I want to hear." But no, it was good. It, it was fun, and and uh, but it was nerve wracking at the same time like comparable to a playoff game or different feeling from playing a game, even a really big game? Yeah, it was way different, way different than playing any game um, I was in because it's almost like, it was almost like a job, you know, it's, mm. it's your life. It's, it's not too many people, especially at my age can, can say that, um, that their life is sort of, like my life sort of figured out for the what I need what I need to be working for in the next couple of years and then that's to play for for the coyotes you know so um, where, where some people are still going to school and some people still don't know what they want uh, to do so it, I mean it's it's kind of nerve-wracking at the same time but um, at the same time once it happened it was kind of like a sigh of relief knowing that um, I kind of have uh, what, what I need to be working for the next couple of years and, and everything I need figured out. Just before we get to that moment, um, again, the first round is on the Friday night. Did you, how close attention, like every time they were going to announce a name and the team came on the stage, honestly, are you sitting there saying to yourself, like, are you completely zoomed, zoned in or, you know, focused in going, oh, I wonder if this is it? Or... You know, early in the first round, are you saying, well, you know, I don't think I'm going to go here. Like, what is going through your mind every time a team steps up to the microphone? Well, obviously, um, for me at least, I, I, I mean, I kind of knew um, my projected area. And, uh, you know, I some some little, some people said I was going to go um, late, late in the first round, but not too many. So, you know what, I went to the, I went on the, on the Friday, the first day with an open mind. Um, and, and, and I knew, I knew it wasn't, um, a very high chance I, I was going to get picked. You know, I kind of just went for the experience and just to see how it was. And, um, uh, so I kind of went there with an open mind. And then the second day, I mean, when, when every team's going up to the mic, you're like, Oh, right one, right around that late second round, um, early third round, you're like, Oh, I, this is, this is right around the time. And so it's pretty and, focused at that point. Yeah. Yeah. So you're, you're like, Oh, you're thinking what? the next pick you see it on the board and you're like oh like, did, did they like me at, at the combine did, you know like that's always going through oh did I have a good interview with them did, you know so um but I talk with that being said I only talked to Arizona maybe two times during the year so um it, it's all you, you never know who did you think on I mean even though Arizona and you're delighted you went to Arizona who did you think you were going to go to was there a team based on the talk based on the interview the number of times they've been in contact was there a team you really thought was the favorite you know what i talked to uh, i mean i talked to a lot of teams but i think um there was a couple that i personally thought um i and, and i felt uh very comfortable with and and not not because 
just where they picked and, and such, but I think it was just I talked to them most, and that was um, I talked to Tampa a lot and uh, Pittsburgh and Chicago. I, those were the three teams that I thought I was uh, I was going to go to based on how many times I, mm. I uh, had spoken to them during the year. But like I said, I mean, it's a you never know. You know, each team has a different approach, and and uh, each some some teams want to take you out for dinners and and uh, do this and get to know you and 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 you know, so, and some teams like to lay off and let you play, and so um, it, it's all different. My colleague Terry Pekoski from the Spectator was down there, and I saw a video that she took when your name was called. The problem was where she was sitting, as soon as your name was called, the entire family around you jumped to their feet and screamed. I couldn't actually see you at all. What did you do when you heard your name called? Yeah, that's funny. I mean, there, like you said, there's a ton of people down there with me. And, and uh, we, you know, when I got my name called, I mean, even talking to my mom after, she said um, uh, the I, there was a loud, loud cheer when I, when I got when my fa- name finally got called, and, and she said she didn't even hear it. Um, so that just goes to show the, the even the nerves on my parents. And um, did you, you know, hear I just, it? I, I I heard it. I heard it. Yes. And okay, what did you but, do? What did you what what, ha, what? Not what goes through your mind. That's the cliche question. Of what goes through your mind? I'm sure what went through your mind was, "Gee, I'm really glad I got picked." But what did you do? How did you react? Yeah, I just kind of I stood up and and I had my agents behind me and as well as the family and I kind of um, I, I turned to my sister first and then uh, hugged her and then I just kind of kept going down the line and it felt like the line never stopped. <laughs> you uh, with the hugs, so um, that, that's what I did after. When you got down to the edge of the stage or when you got your shirt because they give you the sweater, it had ent whistle on the back, right? Yes, it did. And was that a felt thing that they had stuck on? Like you got to keep their, or or did you did they really know they were going to be picking you, and they were that confident that they had already sewn your name on? You know what they had, um, they had that already there uh, with with my, my my name bar with uh, with the jersey. So um, uh, somewhere along the lines, they they wanted they I was on their radar and I was on their list. So. Um, they were, I think, judging from what they said, they were, they were happy to, to take me in the third round. Um, so, uh, I mean, it, it was, it was there and uh, I mean, I mean, it, it was cool. It was a cool experience and I mean, something I'll never, never forget. Do you, how much of the whole thing do you remember and how much just becomes a complete blur when that moment that you waited all your life for happens? Yeah, it's kind of surreal. I mean, uh, from minor hockey going on, it's something. It's a day you watch on TV, and and uh, from a little kid, and and knowing that you were actually sitting in the chair waiting for your name to be called was huh. was kind of crazy if you think about it. And you know what? It didn't really sink in until the the night after when once every, all the interviews and and all the things were done, and and I, I took my phone out of my pocket and I saw all these congratulation message i had like 300 messages and i was like oh my like you know like it and now now it's real you know and and it kind of sunk in then um but i mean like it it was nerve-wracking and it, it was but at the same time it was it was awesome now some people may be thinking okay you know what mckenzie got drafted two weeks ago at the nhl draft radley why are you having him on now why is it so late well i'll tell you why because what was it two days after the draft you had to get on a plane and go down to arizona you know what it was the day after so i got drafted on the uh saturday and then um, i left on the sunday i left at 5 a.m 
on Sunday and I flew down to Arizona um, for two weeks. So uh, we had the development camp and then we had a little skating camp after. So um, it, it was tough. It was, it was long, long and um, it was hot and it was a lot of hard work. How, yeah, when you step off the plane in Arizona in the middle of summer, uh, was that around the was that the same time that they were closing the airports down in Las Vegas and stuff because the heat was it was so hot they couldn't even take off take the planes off? Yeah, well, funny story. I, I um, the my when my flight was leaving uh, to come home, it it got delayed because uh, the smoke alarms kept going off, <laughs> and it was just it, it wasn't that there wasn't there wasn't a fire or anything. It was just so hot. The plane was reading that uh, there was a fire, so. Uh, my plane got delayed a couple of hours and we were sitting on the plane and I mean, it, it was something I'll never, you know, it, it's something crazy, you know, like it, it was, it was so, so hot and, and uh, I mean, 50 degrees, it, it was something like that every single day. That's not exactly uh, hockey weather. It's, is it hard to get yourself into a hockey frame of mind when it's that hot or, Hey, this is the NHL. I don't care if it's a billion degrees I'll play. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it, it, it was, I mean, I, I kind of took it as, uh, I mean, I'm here now, and and no matter how hot it is, I'm, I'm in the hockey rink. Whether it's in Hamilton, whether it's um, in in uh, Arizona, you know. So I just kind of, um, it's it's uh, hockey's just kind of like my happy place. And and when I get on the ice, it's it's uh, it's kind of like everything else is, is pushed off to the side, and I just focus on that. Uh, whether whether it's school and and such, it's, I mean, it's just all. You don't think about anything when you're on the ice, you know. So um, it, it's nice in that way, and and um, so it, it was it was hard at the same time because once you go on the ice and then you come back, it, you're done for the day, and you're like, oh, what do I do now? It's like, okay, well, let's go down to the pool, you know. So uh, <laughs> it, it was cool, but it, it was different. Did it feel like because it's now an NHL camp and it's a bunch of draft picks and a bunch of, I guess, some free agents or some tryout guys, did it feel like every time you stepped on the ice it was a tryout? Um, you know what? Development camp, um, at least in Arizona, was it was it was calm and 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 uh, collective. You know, they they wanted you to um, they wanted you to be comfortable and and uh, I mean we got to we did a lot of um, things to. To gel and, and to get to know each other so it, it was much easier than um, what, what people expected I, I think um, I would assume that the uh, the main camp and and, uh, and the rookie tournament will be a little bit uh, more challenging but um, I mean I think it's just more the rookie camp I think in, uh, in Arizona it was more of just getting your feet wet putting your feet in the door and, and uh, just seeing getting a little taste of how, how the NHL works. And it's not just hockey, right? There's a lot of stuff off the ice that you're doing there as well that they're exposing you to. Yeah, yeah, we did. Um, we did a lot of uh, community events, and, and uh, I mean, we, we did. We walked around, and uh, we did a couple autograph signings, and then uh, we at least my, we split off into groups, and, and uh, we did different things around the community and I was <laughs> I was delivering donuts to uh to police officers and, and firemen throughout the uh <laughs> um yeah city down there so uh it, it was cool lessons like did you, do they do classroom stuff as well and um, they did yeah they did a little bit of uh nutrition nutrition stuff and and uh the the like sort of your sleep habits and and things like that, uh, your your off ice habits and and uh, they talked to us about that. Any any suggestions on how to deal with the media? 
Uh, they did. They did yeah, yeah they, are, they talked a little bit. Are you um, using any of those tricks on me right now? <laughs> no, no, not really. It, it is, though, it's amazing to me because you played all year. You started in training camp, started in beginning of September last year for the Bulldogs. You play all year. You get to the playoffs this year. You have um, the combines to do after that. I'm sure you're trying to stay in shape. You're still skating because this is coming up. You go to the draft. You go right to the camp. You're going to have the rookie camp. You're going to have the rookie tournament. And then training camp starts again. It's gotta, at some point, it's got to get kind of exhausting when you don't have any real break from hockey for the whole year. Yeah, you know what, Scott, it, it is tiring a little bit, but you know, at the same time, it's it's something um, it's something you you love to do, and and uh, now that now that you kind of have something you can you, you can you're working towards, um, and and that's my goal is is my next goal is to to get a to get a contract in the NHL level, and and then uh, ultimately play and. And uh, knowing that all those steps that you're taking uh, and not having summers off and not having a couple of days off, it, it's all hopefully going to work out in the end. And, and uh, once it does, then, then uh, I mean, then you can have your, your sort of day at, days off. And, um, and, and when, once your dream, I mean, it, it's, I, once, you're, once I got drafted, it was kind of like, well, I've taken one big step in the right direction. It's just now I need to take the little couple, little more steps um, steps in order to get to that level and and I think going to the development camp and and seeing what Clayton Keller and and Fisher and all these guys and Perlini and Krause and, and seeing what they do and how they go about themselves at, at such a young age at the professional level I think um, it, it really helped me uh, develop as a player and uh, as a person off the ice so um, I'm excited to see uh, what the future holds. Last thing for you this was probably I'm guessing just about the first time since you were eight, maybe nine, that you walked into a dressing room and then stepped on the ice and you didn't have Matt Strom beside you. It's got to feel weird. Yeah. It, I mean, it did. It did. Um, and, you know, it was, it, was, uh, it, was, it was fun, though. I mean, and uh, I was so happy for Stromer to, to get drafted to the Flyers and, and he was sitting a couple rows ahead of me at the draft. And then once I got drafted, he... Um, he stood up and gave me a hug in the aisle as I walked down to uh, to, to the tables, um, and and then after so after I did my media and, and I went back up to the uh, to the, the Arizona, um, it was sort of like a box. Uh, they uh, I looked uh, I looked down and I looked at the screen and that was when Stromer was getting picked. So um, I was happy to see that and and uh, I mean it was, it was it was awesome to go through that but even last year and, and all these past years going through it as, as kids all the way up to now, it, it was something special. It is, uh, it is really exciting. I, I have no idea. I can't imagine, but you know, I, you put yourself into the, into the mind. We try to imagine, live vicariously through you and, and think about what a, a treat that would be, how exciting that would be. And, uh, a lot of fun to watch you get picked, Matt, uh, McKenzie. And, um, you know, can't, can't wait to see what you do. I mean, this year you're assume presumably you're back with the Bulldogs. Who knows? Maybe you make Arizona right off the bat, but, uh, we're excited to see what you're going to do. And I, listen, I appreciate the time today. Thanks. Yeah, thank you very much for having me, Scott. Have a great day. That is Mackenzie Entwistle of the Hamilton Bulldogs, as I say, presumably, uh, but drafted by the Arizona Coyotes. And again, the re- why do we have him on now? Because hockey has never stopped. He got drafted, went right down to Arizona, and he's just back from Arizona. It, it's This is really the first chance he's had to stop and take stock of what's going on in his life. But man, oh man, can you imagine being 18 
and have that thrill. Anyone who's played hockey could only imagine what that would be like. I'm, I can't. I played hockey. I played hockey growing up. I was a goalie. I like to say that I was the safest goalie on the planet because the puck never hit me. Not a great thing for a goalie, but you know, kept my parents feeling good that their son was not going to be injured, I guess. Anyway. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. I'm assuming many of you, most of you, have had the joyous experience in recent years of having to drive to Toronto at some point on the 401, on the QEW, and 403, whatever, uh, through the Gardner Expressway. It is, to say it's a pain in the butt is such a massive understatement. There is almost nothing we look forward to less now than having to go into Toronto and dealing with that stuff. It is bumper to bumper. It is crawling. It is slow. It is awful. So what are the alternatives? Well, you can take the GO train, which generally works very well. But as I said last hour, if tragically, if there's somebody hit by a train, which happens now and then, or if there's some other reason for a delay, that doesn't work so well. GO buses, same problem. So is there a better way? Well, there might be. Andrew Dreschel wrote a piece in the spec this week postulating about whether or not Lake Ontario might be the solution. Could we start to see people bypassing the highways, bypassing the trains, bypassing those things, and using the lake, which would seem to have the great advantage that there's no such thing as a traffic jam when you're on a giant body of water. You simply avoid other boats. Well, here to help us with this, to understand whether that is reasonable, realistic, whatever, Ian Hamilton is the president and CEO of the Hamilton Port Authority. He joins me now. Ian, thanks for doing this tonight. Oh, thanks. Thanks for having me. Um, We, by now, according to all the movies that we watched as kids, were supposed to have flying cars that would avoid and prevent traffic jams. That, sadly, has not happened yet. I was really looking forward to that. But this sounds like the idea of using the lake to try and get people from here to Toronto or here to St. Catharines or here to Niagara Lake, whatever, that sounds like the next next best option, doesn't it? Yeah, and when you uh, when you look at all of the different modes of transportation, really the uh, the waterways is where we've got the uh, the capacity. So it's uh, it's got huge uh, huge potential to try to alleviate some of the congestion. In a in a utopian world, in a dream world, right now, because I think that's what it still is. How would this work? How do you envision that someday we could do this? <clears throat> well, certainly, it's, and it's not um, it's not quite a dream world because it happens in other parts of the uh, parts of the world. But um, we could use um, hovercrafts, you can use fast ferry services, um, even there's some experimental technology from Elon Musk, which is a uh, Hyperloop, which is um, a tube which uh, floats on a, uh, a bed of air and uses electromagnetism to propel people at as much as uh, I think it's 700 miles per hour. So there's, there's lots of different, uh, different technologies and alternatives out there that, uh, that could alleviate it. So fundamentally, you'd run a regular scheduled service um, from somewhere in... Um, in Hamilton or possibly in the Niagara region into uh, into the greater Toronto area. So the Elon, we'll get to the Elon Musk one in just a minute because that's a little more Star Wars-y than the other ones. But the other, as you say, they exist already. This is not that we would have to in- reinvent the wheel. Those kind of things, the fast shuttle, the, the ferries or those kind of things, those already exist. Yeah, and they operate effectively and... Everywhere from uh, from New York to Vancouver to um, to elsewhere in uh, in Europe. So there's a lot of uh, 
a lot of evidence that uh, this is a uh, viable method for moving people around. So not to be totally stupid, Ian, but what would be required then? Would it simply be that we would have to build a launch in Hamilton, let's say, and a launch in Toronto and buy a few boats and we could make it start to happen? Operationally, that would, uh, that's all that would have to happen. Um, you've still got to figure out how do you deal with the, the freezing of the lake in the wintertime. Right. Yep. Um, but uh, maybe maybe a hovercraft can float on top of that. But operationally, you're exactly right. It's just uh, build your two um, build your two docks and um, and put a vessel into into service. The biggest challenge is, of course, um, uh, making sure that it can uh, can perform. The lakes are uh, can get rough, and making sure that it's cost effective, so that it's um, it's competitive with um, with driving, competitive with um, with a go train. But as I, I personally believe that. Um, and I compliment the MTO for all of the money they're investing, but um, the billions and billions that they're putting into the system, every uh, they just cannot keep up with the increased demand. So the congestion's going to grow, and we just uh, we're just falling further and further behind. Well, and and as I said off the top, the, it seems to me anyway, the beauty of this is there's no such thing as a traffic jam on the water. If there's a boat in your way, you go wide around and you pass that boat. Or you, I mean, there's you don't have to be facing the same things as you would on the road. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And obviously, we come from I come from the Port Authority, so our our main focus is on goods movement. And even by by getting uh, trucks off the road and getting them onto mm-hmm. uh, onto some sort of ferry service is going to reduce the congestion on the roads. So it's um, but you're exactly right. It's all about uh, avoiding congestion. Are there I, there have to be some sort of rules and and laws about this kind of thing? Like I could not. If I had the capital, if I went out and got and borrowed the money, I couldn't simply put a ferry onto the lake and offer and, and say I'm going to offer a service and start it up myself. Could I? Is it that simple? Um, are there laws? Are there rules? Are there permits that I would have to have to do this? Yeah, and I'm sure the vast majority of your your listeners who are boaters have their uh, recreational boating license. But once you go into selling for commercial services, Transport Canada has a new set of uh, regulations, including safety and the uh, crewing qualifications. Um, but it's not as um, <laughs> it's not as hugely complicated. It's certainly something that um, that you can uh, you could probably sort out within within six months. And you, you know, you said about the fact that it has to be cost effective or at least affordable for people. But you know what? I got to tell you, even if it was half again as much as taking the GO train. I'm willing to bet you there are a lot of people for the time saved or or half again the cost of driving your car who would say, if I can get there in, what would it take, 45 minutes to get from Toronto to Hamilton if you cut across the lake, if if that, they would do it. it. It would take less. And even... I live out in Niagara, and even now there's a there's actually a plane service that's running from Niagara and the lake into Toronto, which takes 12 minutes, and that's starting to gain to gain traction. So what you're touching on is that uh, the value people put on their time is um, is hugely important. And if you're going to save uh, two hours a day and have a, a different mode of transportation, what, what's that worth? You mentioned the MTO, and that's a kind of an interesting one too, because. Is it your expectation that if someone, let's say someone did, let's say Joe Blow decides to show up and says, I I believe I can make something like this work. Do you believe the government would be amenable to something like this? Because they're putting a lot of money into the roads. They're putting a lot of money. The province is putting a lot of money into go. Do they want something that's going to compete to take people away from the services that the government is running? I I think they'd be okay with it. I think from a they obviously would want to be involved from a regulatory side to ensure that uh, safety was safety rules were met. Um, but in terms of re- 
finding a new way to reduce the congestion on the road, this is um, this is something that they would uh, they would welcome. You mentioned Andrew Dreschel in the piece that uh, that was in the paper that um, you thought it would still right now be a niche market. Why do you think that? Um, quite simply because right now it's still going to be um, going to be more expensive, um, and it's going to fundamentally focus in on uh, certain routes. That uh, that would be uh, people would be willing to to pay a premium for. Um, that's that's really really why it's still uh, in that niche market area. And I know that Metrolinx has looked at it in the past, and the challenge has been they just haven't been able to um, fulfill their mass transit objectives by uh, by going on the water. So the water would end up as some form of um, premium service that operated outside of the uh, Metrolinx services. I, I probably should know this. I, I don't know why I don't. But is there any? Are there any challenges in the lake? So, I mean, Lake Ontario is a very deep lake. There's there's nothing along the route that would pose an imminent threat to boating, would there? It's a it's a pretty easy path if a if a ferry or something was trying to go back and forth from Toronto. <laughs> yeah, it isn't. Uh, I, I don't. I just don't know if there's anything that would be a like a hidden danger or something there that we wouldn't know about that would complicate things. Only, only weather conditions because the, the lake can get quite rough. But um, certainly, you, um, there's so many uh, wonderful views of uh, of Toronto from uh, from all along the uh, the south shore of the lake that uh, you realize that yeah, it's a, it's a clear run. So, is anybody, as far as you know, actually working on this beyond simply asking a few questions? Is there anything that we know of in the works to make this happen? Uh, there's there, there's a few guys who are are kicking it around, and uh, there has been some projects in the past, but it it kind of comes down to what's really going to drive it is is fundamentally gridlock. When um, when all of a sudden you you drive into Toronto one day and it's taking you four hours, and you say, okay, I've had enough of this, and yeah. it just consistently goes on, and all of a sudden that's when someone's going to say, okay, that's fine, I'm willing to pay the premium to take the uh, to take the boat over because I get. Um, Sort of certainty on my transit time, and I get um, and I get to to get where I want to be, and uh, and predict what uh, the, the time is going to take me. I I, I agree a hundred percent, and I think, as I say, I think a lot of people would be willing to to do that if if for the fact that it is quicker and it is guaranteed, and well, I think you would think it would be guaranteed. You mentioned one other idea, which I thought was really interesting, which is more futuristic, it's more modernistic, and Elon Musk, you were talking about, explain how he, how that would work, because that really is, I think, a lot further down the road. Yeah, and that, that would take a lot more work than, you're right, putting a ferry service on. But it's a, it's a neat, um, and, it, and it could address the mass transit side of things, because it's, it, it works on tubes, and they do have some... Um, so under the lake, uh, not, not just underwater, like under the lake itself. That, that was my idea, and let's be honest, it was it was a bit it was a bit facetious. I was trying to make a uh, make a point to say that um, you know what we're we're on a path that we have to start to explore uh, new technologies and new ways to try to address this congestion issue. And um, this is something that they're experimenting with in the United States, and they have prototypes that are operating. Um, and it uh, it could very well put the two right underneath the uh, at the bottom of the lake and uh, and run people um, in pods. From uh, from Hamilton to Toronto and uh, and vice versa. And you say it's facetious, and I get that. But at the same time, uh, the channel is under the English Channel. I mean, it was it's it is that same kind of idea. Maybe not with the seven hundred mile an hour pods, but it's um, you know it, it's a similar type of thing. I'm sure. Once upon a time, they said the idea of a, a tunnel underneath the English Channel was crazy. Yeah, I'm sure they did, and <laughs> and I think that as as we start to see 
the uh, commercial applications of these technologies in other areas, then I think we're going to understand that uh, you're right. It's it's a lot uh, it's a lot closer than we realize. I, I'll be honest with you. I just can't believe that at this point we don't have something like this already. When you consider, I mean, I've been to BC with the ferries from Victoria to Vancouver and been other places where they have ferries that are operating. I, I can't believe that this doesn't already exist. It seems like just such an obvious answer to a problem. It really does. Yeah, and I think it's, I, I think as, as the congestion grows, and as I said, we complement the MTO and the money that uh, well, the people of Ontario are investing into into transportation infrastructure, but they just can't keep up with the growing demand. So that's just going to increase frustrations. And I think that's the, uh, I guess, what do they say, mother, uh, necessities of the mother of mm-hmm. all invention. And that's going to push us to say, okay, we've um, we've done everything we can on our existing modes. What else can we look at? And this is where we very much encourage the um, the MTO to start to include marine in their multimodal strategy. It really needs to. No, it really needs to. And Ian, just one more thing. We've got to run, but just one more thing. Is Mm -hmm. there, one of the big questions would be, um, Hamilton, our transit system, um, it, it is what it is right now. Hopefully it will be improving, but it is what it is. Is there land down by the port area? If you were going to actually put a launch down there to do something like this, is there land, are there places where people could park? Because right now it would be pretty difficult if you were only going to take public transit, or is that just something we would have to factor in and make more transit to come down there? Yeah, and that's you're right. That's a an interesting question: is how do you um, evacuate and bring the people into the location where the uh, where the hub or the terminal is going to be? Certainly, in that um, where the lift bridge is and in that fisherman's pier area. I think there's a lot of opportunity, and uh, some of the land is federal, some of the land is um, owned by, I think, the city of Burlington, but there's certainly an area in there where we could uh, create a terminal and create the parking necessary. But it, uh, again, having that right connectivity with other modes of transportation at that location would be, would be fantastic as well. I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here hoping that this actually can happen soon because it, it just it sounds so obvious that, I, as I say, I can't believe it hasn't happened before. Uh, Ian Hamilton, President and CEO of the Port Authority, thanks for the time tonight. Really appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me. That is, um, what, what do you think, Will? I mean, you're, um, you kind of would probably fit the demographic that would love something because you're, you're younger, you are in the group that likes, I, the age group anyway, that seems to be very supportive of public transit. Um, I, I'm looking at this, as I say, I'm looking at this thinking, this solves so many problems and seems to do it in a way that is vastly less expensive. I mean, I, I'm guessing that a ferry is probably not cheap, but it's a lot cheaper than a mile or two or a kilometer or two or three of roadway yeah. or, or LRT that's whatever amount of <laughs> billions of dollars for 11 kilometer. Yeah, I, I was thinking about it earlier because I heard someone wanted to open an independent uh, hovercraft uh, ferry out of St. Catharines. They're talking about the noise issues that would go into that. But yeah, the lake is it's staring us right in the face. Like when I, when I thought of it, I was like, yeah, how come we haven't done this? Well, look at a map of yeah. Toronto to Hamilton. And I mean, I know that on the, if you zoom out, it looks like it's almost a straight line from Toronto to Hamilton, but you know how it takes to yeah. drive there. Now you just cut straight across the lake. Yeah. And I would so like to better. believe, and I would like to believe that here in this country, in North America, in this area, that we could have ferries that were monitored for safety so we don't end up with those horrible situations that you hear about somewhere overseas where they've overloaded them and stuff we mm-hmm. always hear about these tragedies i don't ex- we that have, wouldn't that wouldn't be an issue i i mean it's a different 
set up, but we have them out on the West Coast. If you want to go yes. out to Victoria from Vancouver, you get on the ferry. Honestly, I think it would also We've got them up at Manitoulin Island from Tobermory. Yeah. I think financially it would be another thing that would be good good for Hamilton as well to have the like a port being used for a civilian access. I think uh, how, how has how has this not happened yet is my question as you think about this it is so logical it's so yeah. obvious. We can't drive to Toronto. The drive <laughs> the only Boy, people we <laughs> well the only people who would have a who wouldn't understand this are those who have never driven to Toronto. I don't know who those are. If you've driven to Toronto ever, you understand. You could be driving to Toronto at 3 o'clock on a Sunday morning on Christmas Day and there's a traffic jam. There's never not a traffic jam going into Toronto now. Now, you say, all right, so if I have to drive my car into Toronto and I'm going to go downtown to, I'm going to see a Jays game or a Leaf game or a play or a concert or whatever, and it's going to take me $10 in gas, I think it'll be more than that, plus the wear and tear on your vehicle, plus it's going to be 30 or 40 bucks in parking. So let's say it's a $50 commute to get to Toronto, and it's going to cost you 60 bucks for a pair of you, for a couple, to take a boat, a ferry. I'm taking the boat every single time. And that'd be a fun trip, too. Could be. Especially, he said, Ian was saying, well, the lake can get rough. Yeah, let's bring that on. Now you you pay extra for the ride. No, you don't do that. But I've been on some cruise ships when it got rough. You don't necessarily want to. And and I would I would love to know. I mean, I suppose that you would then have other things to deal with. You'd have seasickness and other. I mean, who knows if if can you get seasick in the span of a commute from Hamilton to Toronto? I don't know. I some people are probably prone pretty, to I, it. I I have family members who could. But still, I think it's a. It would be a good option. You it, say we have flying cars. This would be the next next best thing. Yeah, it's just it's, so. And, and the hovercraft thing, the downside of the hovercraft, and I've seen some of the pictures or the. I don't, I don't think that any of them are. They haven't made one yet. They're all just um, composite videos and stuff. You we, probably couldn't make one big enough to be move enough people at once to yeah. make it financially worthwhile. You could though put you could put a couple thousand people probably on a ferry. I don't know how many I mean the hovercraft might go faster, but you'd have to do a lot more trips. This again, go up to Tobermory, get on the Chichimon and go over to Manitoulin Island. You can see what you could have. And those ones you drive your car right on it if you want to. It's not it it, it solves all the all the issues. Go to New York City and see the Staten Island Ferry going back and forth across. It's how you do it. Also, we both uh, forgot Toronto Island. Yeah, well, they have a ferry. Tinier trip, but still. And that one is that one is generally. I mean, you're right. You're absolutely it, right. I was going to say that's packed and sweaty. It's, it is, and it's also for a lot of people, especially in the summer, it's seen as more of like a touristy thing than a need to get back and forth. But it, you're right. It, it absolutely proves works. It can be. It proves absolutely. It proves that it could be done. So. Somebody get on this. We've got, we've, to the Mercant, who was it? The Mercantis and who, who found the, uh, the money, the private money for the sign that's going to be outside Hamilton City Hall now? Next job, find private money for a ferry service to go from Toronto to Hamilton. You have your next assignment. Go now. We applaud you for getting the sign, but this, this would be your masterpiece solve the commute problem and this would be what you could rest on for time eternal just telling you make it happen 
You've proven you can find private money. You've proven you can squeeze private money out of investors and out of philanthropists and kind corporate citizens and kind private citizens. I don't know who the money's coming from. Go to those same people and say, all we need is an extra billion. Surely they're good for that. I don't even know if it'll be a billion. But come on, this boat makes all the sense in the world. It really does. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900, AM 900, CHML.